Good. Good. Can you hear uh, me? Yeah, glad, uh, glad we were able to connect. Yeah, can you hear me okay? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, good. Okay, good. Good, good. So, I don't know if you saw that first question. So, I was wondering uh, where you're from and uh, how would you say that, that place and those people have influenced your life? Sure, yeah. Um, I am from San Mateo, California. So, I grew up there from basically when I was born. Uh, my family lived there but moved into the house I grew up in when I was six weeks old. So, spent my whole life from zero to 18 years in San Mateo and you know there's a lot of ways that living there influenced me and one way is at the time I grew up it was one of the most diverse counties in California so we just had people of all types of different backgrounds I went to public school so um, I think I was just I didn't realize that other people weren't just always exposed to a lot of different cultures um, so, you know, I, I was friends with and hung out with a ton of people from Latin America. So from a young age, I knew, you know, the difference between countries in, in Latin America, Central America, Mexico, South America, um, even sort of got to know the different, I don't know the dialects in different places, but knew that there were differences in ways people spoke Spanish. And um, there was a lot of influence from Pacific Islander communities where I grew up. Um, and, and so I think that that level of diversity, which, um, you know, I think has changed in the area since then a little bit in, in different ways. Um, Why, because of the, uh, the Silicon Valley? Uh, I think so, but I also think, um, yeah, I, you know, I don't live there anymore, so I can't speak 100% to it. Um, but I think the Silicon Valley influence has changed things a little bit. When I go back there, it still feels the same, but like I said, I don't spend a ton of time there. But even interestingly, I was just um, at a gathering of, of people I went to middle school and high school with, and, and there's still a lot of the friends I had were from Latin American countries. Um, but I also saw like this socioeconomic kind of bandwidth, right? Like there were people that went to schools that I was in that were really wealthy and people who were middle class and people who were, you know, getting free lunch. And I didn't know what that meant as a kid, but I kind of learned as I went along. And some of the friends that I had ended up being kind of gang involved and going to juvenile hall. And I was always just really curious about that because there would be people who I'd be like, this person is so good and so sensitive wow. and so kind. And then why are they acting, you know, um, at some times maybe they'd be getting into a fight or they'd be kind of taking a stance against a different group of people. And so I didn't, at the time I was just watching that stuff happen and I was always really curious about it. Like, wait a minute, last year you were different or, you know, you used to play violin and play soccer and now you're doing these other things. And, and I've talked to people who've developed along in that way where they've ended up getting, you know, being involved in gangs and getting tattoos. And they're like, what happened? I used to play violin. And you're like, yeah, exactly. Um, so there's just different people that I've known that have stuck with me in terms of how they developed and how, uh, how their community or society or, you know, different ethnic or racial or social economic backgrounds would influence that. So 
that's always been fascinating to me. And it's, it's always been something, um, academically that I've, I've sought out and studied in terms of. Well, I, I just want to stop, we'll stop you there about that. Well, what, um, well, how would you explain that phenomenon now? I'm wondering. From your... Yeah, I don't know that I could fully explain it, but I think, um, there's a lot going on there. There's, um, there's expectations. So one of the studies I did at Harvard was about working with um, specialized populations and supporting them in, in their academic development. So we worked with all these different programs. Some of them were really high achieving. Some of them were supporting um, students who were kind of C average in classes to, to develop themselves and to develop their talents. Um, and, and some were trying to help kids who were failing you know, get into college. So there was a whole spectrum. Uh, but one of the things that they all did is they provided really high expectations for the students. And so one of the one of many, many things I could talk about, I could spend like hours going on about answering your question right now. But one of the things I think that comes into play is expectations. And I think um, so the effective programs we found had high expectations. What was that, that program that you that you were going to school in at Harvard? Is unique. Uh, it was name it? it was called at the time risk and um, risk and prevention. So we studied risk and we studied resilience, and now it's called prevention science. It's in the School of Education at Harvard, and, and it was a phenomenal program, um, and still is. I'm still connected to a couple of the professors there, but. Um, yeah, we we were doing a Nellie Mae funded um, high achievement initiative, and so we were looking at these programs, and we found that if they had high expectations and high support, then like those were the programs that were really successful in terms of their outcome numbers of of you know helping students get to college or whatever their goal was. So one of the things I I think that could have been missing for some of the people I saw growing up was just expectations you know some of them came from immigrant families and their their parents didn't really just know the school system here didn't know what to what expectations to hold them to so you know I'm, I'm making some just observations and guesses and putting that together with research right now but I think one of the things that that happens is if someone sees something in us and says I know you can do this and I'm gonna help you get there we're much more likely to get there than if there's no expectation set or if there's an expectation like you have to get straight A's, but there's no path, there's no support, right? That makes sense. So that Yeah, I don't know if you ever heard of the organization The Covenant House. What's that? Yeah, I have. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's this uh, this guy's a pediatrician that, that uh, is involved with The Covenant House in, in Philadelphia, Ken Ginsburg. And one of the things that he says related to the expectations, I really like that, that the kids live up or down to the expectations that sort of adults have for them. Yes. Yeah, they live up or down. And if in the absence of expectations, like if if your parents are working really hard and they're not around as much, or if you don't really know if if they don't know what they want to what to expect from you, or they don't know they're not familiar with the culture in order to know what's going to help you in that system, then you're kind of lost, right? There's there's yeah. no bar. So they'll live up or they'll live down. So they'll live down maybe if there's you know abuse or neglect and they'll live up if there's high expectations, high support. But I, what I feel like I saw was a lot of middle ground there, like a lot of, you know, my parents love me and probably think I'm smart, but they don't really know how to set, how to set certain bars or teachers. I mean, not, not just talking about parents here, 
I think there's an element of expectation of what are the teachers expect. And then layered into some of that is kind of internalized um, stereotypes or racism or, or um, like, uh, there's not really a word for this, like the ism in terms of expectations in terms of how much income someone has, right? Like if someone is, you know, if a teacher unconsciously is putting a student into a certain box, that's right. going to really influence them too. And I think that's actually changed for the better in the school systems that I was in. Um, and I think um, hopefully at large in, in the community of the world. But my, my old government teacher became the principal of my high school. And he would, when I went and met with him years after I had graduated, this is probably 10 years ago now, he said, you know, that's really changing, like the tr tracking of students and things like that, where um, you see a lot more diversity in the advanced placement classes and, and that's becoming less I mean, it's still a challenge, but less of an issue and something they're addressing. So that I was happy to hear. Yeah, that's that's exciting. Uh, so I was wondering if you, yeah, if the the question, what uh, if you if you could invite any two people to dinner, alive or dead? <laughs> I love this question because <laughs> my mind just goes everywhere, and I can think of I can think of a ton of people. Um, but what I came to for for now for today, asking me yeah. today. I would love to have dinner with Michelle Obama and Martin Luther King. Okay, good, good, nice, uh, nice choices. So, how 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 did you pick uh, Obama, Michelle Obama? Yeah, well, her speech recently. I mean, everyone keeps calling it like a mic drop of a speech. She was just right. so inspiring and so um, clear in her presentation and so motivational. And I also feel like she was herself, like she wasn't, and no pun intended here, but in terms of the things that have happened across the conventions, but she wasn't imitating anyone, right? She was really, um, it felt like she was really speaking from herself and from her heart. And I know they all have speechwriters and work on that stuff and, and craft it, but it was just felt uh, like a really clear message. And because she does so much work to support women like a lot of her initiatives and her efforts as first lady have been um, supporting of women across the world and so those are the things that what I would really want to talk to her about would be those initiatives and you know how does trauma play in and how do we keep things trauma informed and how do we um, use what we know about trauma and how it impacts people to then build that to, to prevent what we can and then to build that resilience. Yeah, but related to her, I mean, I, I love, I love, uh, I think she's great, and the speech was great. But, but the one criticism that I've ha I have for one of the things that she says, and it's not really about her necessarily. It's just it's a, a message I think a lot of people promote regarding uh, mental health. Is and I remember hearing her speak one time about mental health. Is that uh, you know that we need to, the, the sort of idea of parity that we need to treat uh, mental health problems in the same and with the same uh, uh, respect as physical problems. And, and we, you know, we said, you know, if somebody breaks it, you know, their arm, we don't, we don't, um, um, yeah, we don't put a judgment on it, but, but uh, you know, if it's a mental health problem, we just say, get over it kind of stuff. Right, right. And, yeah, about sort of that, uh, it's a little bit more that medical, mo I feel it, it kind of promotes this, um, you know, d uh, medical disease model of mental health, which I really like the, the trauma-informed perspective, whereas it, it is, it's sort of showing how, 
you know, at least my perspective is that almost all mental health problems, the majority of them are related to trauma and that the mental health issues are more the symptoms of the trauma rather sure. than the root of the problem. But uh, Yeah, I mean, but, and that's a lot of my experience working with, you know, working with youth in, in really challenging settings, like kids who've grown up in poverty or who've been abused or whose parents have been incarcerated, things like that. And I think yeah. the ACE study really supports that. The thing that, I, that I, and I don't know what when she said this, but the thing that I that I agree with, this is more um, work from um, is it Nadine Burke Harris, who's yeah, in terms of the ACE study, in terms of physical health, in for, like really understanding how trauma impacts physical health. Right, you know, and that, that I that I totally support. Yeah, and responding to that, huge. But I'm with you on what you said of not. Um, I think when you really understand trauma, it normalizes things so much. It gives you this whole different perspective. And then what you're really talking about is building social and emotional health, which yes, we know increases you know physical health and decreases risk of all these diseases. So I think the longer you've studied this stuff and the more you know, the more you kind of have that perspective of. So much of this is preventable and is related to how we relate to each other and how we raise kids and, and environments and contexts. And, but that's much more complicated for people to think about, right? Right. I mean, and that, that's also the, the real challenge of it because it's easy to go up. Like, I mean, I'm not, it's not necessarily that she's necessarily, uh, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's more of a, a systems issue the way I see it. That, totally. Uh, that, um, that when you say like uh, it's it's hard to convey that in a soundbite, the whole trauma perspective. Absolutely. It's easier to, easy to convey in a soundbite that we need to treat mental health problems like a broken arm, but but I just see a little a danger in that putting putting that message out there like that. That's... One of the things I've seen is that relates to what we're talking about is so when I've testified as an as a and done expert testimony for trials, people don't see they don't see physical effects of trauma, right? If there is, for example, a broken arm, you can look at that arm, you can look at the x-ray and go, oh, that's broken. Right. And, we, and we have this set way to respond to it. We're going to set the arm, we're going to put a cast, it's going to be on for six to eight weeks, whatever, right? But with something like emotional trauma, oh, okay, so um, your son got attacked by a dog and now he's having nightmares. Uh, okay, but we maybe he had nightmares before or maybe the nightmares are about a scary movie or you know and all of a sudden all this other stuff comes in where yeah. you know if someone sat on your arm and broke it you can see it's broken and that's what caused it and i think it's but it's it's impossible for us to really have that concrete of a model but the more you understand trauma the more you can see the cause and effect right well, also the more I think you understand it, you can observe it in people too. By by, um, you can pick it up more clearly. But but it's it's sort of the, the, the way that it's sort of that you like as a therapist or psychologist or even a teacher. It's like you you are the instrument, and the more you you know work with people that have been traumatized, the more you're able to observe it too in people. Exactly. So the more versed you are in it, the more you can make those connections. And so a lot of it is education then, so that people yeah. can see the cause and effect of it rather, and, and that people can understand the implications of it. Because like you said, like initially, the problem 
is that people will dismiss it. Oh, suck it up. Oh, that didn't really happen. Oh, you're fun. Yeah, and I think that that is one of the great things of the ACE study is it really, it really, to me, blew my mind and shows how it really uh, it makes all these connections between trauma and all these other issues. And, uh, and this guy who's uh, a doctor in Camden, he does sort of similar, well, a little bit different than Nadine Burke Harris, but he's working in a very... Uh, impoverished part of Camden and when I heard this interview with him and he said this whole idea of trauma creating all these physical problems is not a new idea like Freud talked yep. about it yeah but the new thing is that we are we're understanding the more the mechanism yes. of how like stress you know I saw you posted something and I've seen that too about how, how the, you know, there's this brain immune connection whereas uh like the immune, the immune system can influence how people behave and all these crazy things. Yeah, and how connected all these things are. And I think exactly what you said, we're understanding the mechanisms more with fMRI and all these other things. We have these tools to really look at. I mean, there are studies where someone reads a script of their trauma while their brain is being, is being measured through fMRI. And then we can look at, okay, what parts are activated now and what parts are activated when you're meditating and what, you know, and then we just increase our understanding of the brain, which is so complex, but yeah. you know, we're getting, we're getting better and we're getting more of an understanding of the mechanisms. Yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, we're moving on to uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. So what, what, what about him would you, uh. You know, just his commitment to nonviolence. And I thought for a second, like, um about Gandhi when you were asking about the, you know, who to have dinner with. Um, but I, I think Martin, I chose Martin Luther King for a couple of reasons. One, I seem to always end up stumbling on his quotes in times of inspiration and they really resonate. And two, because, you know, so much of what's happening in the world right now in America, what's happening in America right now is like strain between like a lot of what I'm seeing in private practice and in, in students in my online course and, other yoga teachers is this, how do we respond to the stress between um, law enforcement and African-Americans and people of color in general? And, and there's this really, it makes sense. There's so much trauma in the history of this country in terms of Native Americans, in terms of African-Americans. Right. And so I think he comes to mind and and he, I would want to meet with him to like strategize and, and try to and, and from this trauma-informed lens of, okay, look at this intergenerational trauma, look where we are right now, what would you do based on your amazing record of, you know, nonviolently organizing people and being a leader in, in faith and in standing from a place of love? Like, how would, what would you advise moving forward? I would love to hear that from him. And, I mean, both Michelle Obama and Martin Luther King just seem like such cool people, like, just to spend yeah. time with. So even if I couldn't strategize and pick their brains and all that, I, I feel like they're both just really loving people, and it would be great to spend, you know, a couple hours with them. Yeah, related to Martin Luther King, like, I've really been mesmerized lately by a lot of the things he said, and, like, I, I felt, like, initially because we, like, you know, we celebrated Martin Luther King Day as a national holiday, and we talked about him in schools, you know, I, I thought because of that that he wouldn't be as radical as he really was, and we really look at him, a lot of the things he said were really revolutionary, really against the stream, were not mainstream views. And, yeah. I'm amazed that he was able to 
it'll in some ways become so main like recognized in a mainstream way when he was so radical. Yeah, that's I mean that's quite a accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so how did you uh, what how what, tell me a little bit about the history how you got involved with yoga. I started taking yoga my first year at UCLA, just um, wanted to try something new and different and had heard it was good <laughs> in general for stress or uh, for health. So I started taking it and I just kept taking the next level class and the next level class and then I started going out into the community into yoga studios and um, took a teacher training and it just stuck and I, I think one of the main reasons was it helped me you know, I was in a place of being very intellectual. I was in school and I was studying and I was, you know, doing really, like, working really hard to do really well in my first year of college. And um, I, I just felt in yoga like I really had space for my emotions, right? And so, and things that I didn't even really know were there, or maybe I knew, but I wasn't like, 100% connected to them throughout the day. I'd be like, okay, I know I'm upset about this, but I'm going to class and I'm doing my homework and I'm sitting for this midterm. And then I'd go to yoga and then I'd like, oh, okay, feel it, right? And, and move through it. So there's a, a great, you know, somatic therapy um, and yoga term gets floating, floats around. Uh, you got to feel it to heal it, right? So I feel like I was able to feel things and move through them in a more integrated way because of my yoga practice. And so that, at the time, I was teaching fitness classes, and that was fun, but I just didn't feel like there was enough depth there for me to really communicate or offer what I wanted to offer. So then I started teaching more yoga classes, and it's history. It's been like almost 20 years. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned UCLA. Was, I, I first took yoga in college, too, uh, at the school in Orlando, Rollins College. But I remember I saw well, this one summer in UCLA uh, at this program that I worked as like a counselor. And I remember, I remember back then because you know yoga's just really blown up, as you know, in the last I would say the last twelve years. But then it was popular, but not the way it is now. And I, I remember seeing that I was impressed at UCLA, like seeing that they're like uh, they're at, at the school they offered more like different varieties of yoga than like vinyasa and like different you know. I, Iyengar maybe too. They had all these different varieties. I was impressed that they had all these different yeah. styles. Yeah. They had that back then when you were there? No, when I was there, they had Hatha. They had Hatha yoga. And they had, um, I believe they had a level one and a, le a level two. I think that's how they called it. Or an intro. No, it was introduction and intermediate. And they were 10-week um, classes, right? This is through the, the recreation department. Yeah. But you would sign up for the whole semester for, you know, your 10 classes of yoga. So I did the intro my first semester, freshman year. I did the intermediate. And then I just, I don't know if they had another level at intermediate. Maybe they had intermediate two or something like that. And so then I went and did that. And then when they didn't have anything else to move on to, I just kept taking that class until uh, I eventually left and was studying mostly at Yoga Works in Santa Monica. And how, uh, you know, and what led you to doing the, uh, the master's work? So along the, right at the same time um, at UCLA, I was studying interpersonal communication and psychology. And I started, I was teaching fitness classes, and I started volunteering to work with kids in the Watts Tutorial Program. So these were youth who were living in Nickerson Gardens Housing Development in Watts. 
they were bussed up to UCLA once a week and we would, I would teach fitness classes or teach yoga and mentor them. And that was really my passion when I was there. I loved it. And I ended up actually going down to the housing development and doing some mentoring there and helping out with a homework program and for the younger kids and got really involved and just was really passionate about that work. So I ended up working at, um, a children's home when I graduated and was working with high-risk youth at a youth and family resource center in Orange County. And somewhere in there, a roommate of mine pointed out this program in risk and prevention. And she said, you know, it's, it's at Harvard. And it's funny at the time because I'd always wanted to live in Boston. And I just started thinking about grad school. And I was like, all right, I got to look up programs in the Boston area and then my roommate comes to me with this and I'm checking it out and I'm like this just fits with everything it's it's the only program I've seen that that comes from a resilience standpoint is about trauma but is more broadly just about creating health and promoting health in communities that are challenged whether through finance or through interge intergenerational trauma you know history of violence things like that so it was just perfectly bringing together kind of my academic and future interests and what I was really loving at the time. So I got to go and continue to do practicum work in Boston and study. And I had just amazing professors and a very busy, <laughs> very busy few years, but a very enriching few years there. And uh, so how... Um... So how long have you been doing the more, I guess you've always have been to a certain degree, I'd imagine, the more the, the trauma-conscious yoga or trauma-informed yoga. Yeah, I think it's they've always informed each other, right? Because they, it, one didn't start first. I've kind of done both along the way. Um, and even before, even in high school, I was taking psychology at the local community college and I was working with kids and teaching gymnastics. And so it's all like right next to each other in terms of development. So... Um, they've, I think the longer, the more and the more in depth I've studied each, the more connections I find, even if I go and do like for therapy and EMDR training or a neurofeedback training, and then I come back and I understand more how, how yoga is helpful or how we could use certain yoga poses in certain ways. So it's never really been separate for me, but as I've as I've learned and as I've practiced and as I've worked with people, those connections just get stronger and stronger, which is what led me to teach all these yoga and trauma workshops. I just kind of organically, and it was like 10 years ago and people weren't, weren't super hungry for it like they are now. Right. Um, so I got a lot of like, Hmm, I don't know. How does that connect? And I was just, just let me present and I'll show you. And so, um, started presenting that material and developed it into my online course and all of that. But so yeah, what, what um, I think I saw. What what is the online course you have? So I have an online course in yoga. Uh, it's yoga for trauma, and it's really for mental health professionals and for yoga teachers. Uh -huh. I I love working with both because then they start to get to know each other, and the bridge gets even stronger between the two fields. Um, and it's it's been a six week course, but we're developing it to be a little bit longer and more in depth and offering some more advanced training. Uh, but it's, it goes through all these bridges that I found. So we, we set us a, a strong foundation of 
understanding trauma, of understanding yoga philosophy, of somatic therapy. We talk about trauma-informed yoga. We talk, talk about self-care and systems. So it covers a lot um, that I've just absorbed through through study and experience, mostly through experience. So it's really fun. It's also um, a pretty intense experience for most people who go through it, just in terms of their own healing. So so I'm, it, it's not a course necessarily for someone who just experienced trauma who wants to do yoga. Like there's other places we can them. It's more for, for professionals in the field who, you know, have some of their own, have worked through some of their stuff and have some supports um, so that they can kind of deepen their, their own healing and their own understanding and then spread it out far and wide. So, um, yeah, I remember when we, were, we first talked that I mentioned uh, that I, one of my experiences that, that I, I see that in some, more some yoga like events around in the, the Miami area that people, I mean, it, it's, it's natural that a lot of people that have had trauma uh, are going to be drawn to yoga, whether they're conscious of it or not, but, but I find that they just sort of use yoga to sort of uh, disconnect and numb out. Yeah, and, spiritual uh, bypass. Uh, yeah, uh, you maybe talk a little bit about that and uh, what your take is on that kind of stuff and how do you address it? Sure, well, I think you you address it. My, my take is that yes, it happens. And you know, what I've learned to call that is spiritual bypass, which is just uh -huh. another way of dismissing an emotion or an emotional experience and kind of jumping to. So rather than it gets better than jumping into drugs or alcohol or obsessive behavior, but you're kind of jumping into um, sometimes it gets to the level of denial of like denial of your own emotions, right? So I think to address that, we support yoga teachers in doing their own work because then they can show up in a more integrated way. And, and then we speak to, as yoga teachers or as mental health professionals, we speak to observing what's true rather than denying it and experiencing it in a tolerable way so that when you're in a... And this could be as simple as the way someone's instructing someone in a posture, but if someone's holding a position, you could imagine a teacher saying, um, you know, and no matter what happens, it's all good and everything's fine and Om Namah Shivaya and, you know, just going straight to that place, which could be a resource for some people, but could go to that spiritual bypass. So rather than that, you can encourage people to notice what's happening, notice the thoughts and feelings that are coming up and know that they have choices right? They can go a little deeper if it feels like, okay, I've got this today. I can, I can feel this. They can back out if it's overwhelming. Yeah, no, I think that's very good, but I guess maybe I wasn't clear about the point I'm making more is that how, how do you create a space or environment in, in more of the yoga context where people are, are comfortable, not necessarily much in the class setting, more so in like just kind of... The culture. Yeah, that people are open about sharing their traumas and vulnerability and that it's a sort of a healing space rather than just a, a place to, uh, like I said, to, to go crazy with the asanas or the chanting, whatever, and just sort of disconnect. I think that's all up to the teachers and how they present it, not just to how they present it, but to their own personal experience of it. So a culture is created by people coming together and certain beliefs, right? And people look to each other to look at the cultural norms. So if someone's new to the group, they're going to go, oh, when we come here, we just 
we just do exercise. We don't talk about feelings. And it's interesting you say that because I've been in a lot of different yoga contexts that feel vastly different. So I, I feel like I've been in some that are similar to what you're saying. Um, and I've also been in ones where there's so much emotion flying out and very uncontained and someone you don't remember their name and you know all of their trauma history. And it's like, okay. <laughs> like I, yeah, that happens too. I know what you're saying. That, that, right? that's, yeah. So that's, there's a balance uh... in there of, of <laughs> uh, and I think the balance is it, it. You don't want to, oh, you don't want people to be oversharing without having the intimacy and, and going straight into it. I think the other side of it is someone just saying, okay, we're here to process everything, dig in and hold this pose for 20 minutes and just be really intense about it. There's a time and a place to do that kind of like deep digging, but I think that kind of needs to come from the student or the client or the person. Um, but I think there's a balance in there where we can really hold the value of the body and the spirit and our emotions and our thoughts with with equal um, equal attention. And I think that's the, one of the challenges of yoga. And if a teacher is teaching that, can you keep awareness of all these different things? Um, that's going to be more balanced because really what you're talking about is things getting out of balance, right? You're talking about, oh, it's all body or it's all asana right. or it's all right. spiritual and, and just distracting. And so if people can't um, recognize what's happening internally, mentally and emotionally and meet it, <laughs> then it's going to kind of stay there and move around and come out in different forms. But on a positive note, I I, uh, I personally have found that the uh, I was wondering what your take is on that if you practice doing any of the kirtan. You... I haven't done a, a ton of kirtan. I've been in in some kirtan circles and have worked with some people who are amazing musicians, but I don't really do it myself. Uh, but no, but I just find from the from I mean the yoga too. But I mean I found the kirtan specifically. It's a good sort of kind of. Um, experience for trauma i find that it's just the repetition the music is yeah well there's there's studies on you know your vagus nerve and that singing is right. really good for stimulating your vagus nerve throat, it comes out right and so singing and and studies i was just reading a um, article this morning on ritual and how repetition right. face of things that are unknown or in the face of um, internal challenges, external challenges, repeating things can be really soothing for us and it can yeah. feel like, and mentally and emotionally it can help shift things. The article was about can can like re repetitive prayer actually help if someone's in a hospital room down the street, does that actually help them? And the article didn't have you know any way of measuring that, but what they were talking about was, was it's an internal process, it soothes us as we're struggling makes us able to be a little bit more present for you know the people who need help and that it's a long time i mean people have been doing ritual and singing and repeating prayers for eternity seemingly so that's that's an element that i think can be really healing and and it's always with any type of yoga i always encourage people to look at okay, if you're looking at kirtan, what could be really healthy and helpful about that? What could be triggering about that? So if you had someone who was ritually abused as a kid and there was chanting involved, right. you're not going to send them to kirtan. It just makes sense. But it's just a matter right. of asking those types of questions. Like, what would be most triggering for this person? 
is it being in a room of people in stretchy pants or is it singing or, you know, you don't know, but there's so many elements of health you can bring into a yoga practice. And there's so many different manifestations of yoga in the world that you can find those ones that are going to be the most healthy for each person. I think that's part of the beauty of it is people can just find a, a window or an angle in, in terms of what's going to help them. So do you have your own uh, daily uh, yoga practice or what's your yoga personal practice? I do and it changes and evolves. Um, right now I'm doing uh, more meditation actually and my yoga practice has been kind of, it's slowed down a little bit. Um, I, I was just remembering recently, I guess a few people have asked me about like, what you just asked me, like, when did you start? And I was thinking about those first, that first year of yoga classes, and I was very active. I still was running and, you know, learning to teach kickboxing and doing all this stuff. When I went to yoga, I didn't think of it at all. It, was, it wasn't like it is today, like, so close to, to physical health. I mean, I think we knew about stress response, but it was kind of like, even in terms of, of how it was structured at UCLA, it was in a completely different building on the other side of campus where they had like photography and art classes than all the exercise classes. So right. it was different. And I just remember, so I've been slowing down and just holding poses, um, doing fewer poses in my practice, holding just like a downward dog for a long time. Um, and and kind of coming back to that the middle ground where it it doesn't have to be so intense like even if you look at um, Ayurveda it'll describe yoga as a moderate exercise that never gets too intense but keeps you really healthy so I think right. our our American or whatever else you want to call it um, pull to kind of chase intensity or do things really hard or really well can can pull us out of that balance too. So my personal practice has gone more to like that quieter internal place lately, which is interesting because it's summer. It's kind of the opposite season of that. But yeah, I've been like um, this is kind of related to yoga, but it's something on my, on my it's related in sort of a peripheral kind of way. It's on my, on my mind lately about these. I feel with the, the rise of social media, it's it's really uh, a lot of these people have proliferated this sort of kind of anti-intellectual new age kind of people that, are, that, that sell different products yeah. online and have mass followings and I feel kind of like kind of guru type figures that um, I was wondering what your, what your take is on that kind of stuff. We're all looking for answers <laughs> to questions that we really can't answer right now in right. terms of science and so um, and I do think there is a there's a balance, you know, I've been in a lot of academic environments and lucky, luckily for me, very heart-based academic right. environments, but even there, there can be a pull really into your head. Um, and I, I'm not someone who's, who thinks, Oh, ignore your mind and follow your heart. I think we have all these different layers and aspects of ourselves and that they can really work together. Um, but I think those, those types of movements that are kind of um, guru or someone sort of turns their yeah. power over to someone else, it comes from people's deep desire to want to have answers and want to have guidance. Um, oh. And sometimes the leader can stay connected to really good intentions and, 
sometimes they can't and we've seen people be a kind of swing back and forth too where someone's offering this really amazing thing and then you find out they're doing weird financial stuff with it and right i i think if anyone is like wondering if they're involved in one of those types of things i would really look up um I would look up information on cults, actually. I mean, I know it's yeah. a strong word, but but really when we're talking about a cult, we're just talking about turning your decision-making power over to someone else. And so that's the bottom line, too. I mean, you can Google it, and there's plenty of helpful websites and things. But, but that's the question, I think, and this relates to trauma-informed yoga. You're not answering questions for someone. You're, you're helping them to figure out what's true for them. And so it's easier marketing-wise to say, I'm going to solve all your problems, um, which is why I think those things can be successful in a business way because people want those deep answers and their deepest pains resolved. Right. I mean, I guess it's also the, the challenge, too, is how do you, uh, like, you, like how you said, I mean, the value of some of the so it incorporates the scientific method and scientific thinking, but be, remain heart-centered, but not go, you know, go crazy with the heart-centered and ignore the scientific uh, reason of things kind of thing. How do you, you know, balance it too? The word I come back to, which is present in trauma theory and in yoga, is integration, right? So right. anytime I hear someone in conversation say, oh, dismiss this and dismiss that, it sends up a little like a yellow flag. <laughs> you know, I'm like, mm, let me understand this thing before I decide whether to keep it or to throw it out. Um, because I think sometimes it's so much easier to take less information and integrate it. So a lot of times when we hear something new or different, we'll just blow it off so as not to have to do that work of integrating it into how we understand the world. So integration is something that I come back to that's like, okay, um, can can we, you know, sort of in that calm, present way, explore whatever the evidence is, whether it's a new scientific study or um, it's a spiritual message? Can you see, does it, does it settle in to your own mind and body and, and what does it do to you? Yeah, no, I, lo I love the word integration. And initially, I, I was dismissive of that term uh, a couple of, more in the, in the Kind of think of it psychologically. I thought it was sort of a dumb term, but, <laughs> but now, but now I really see the value of it. I think really for the trauma work, it's like the, so uh, really, I, I don't know if I want to say the, but maybe one of the most important things that it's not, to me, the trauma itself. It's it's not going to make or break you, but it's how you integrate it into your life, and, and I think that's, and it, it causes more distress when people have the trauma. They you know they try to hold it in. But it's when they can share it and have it integrated. It's not going to be like, you know, they're not going to just tell the person they, the first person they meet they've been sexually abused. But but in the pro appropriate context, bring it out and be okay with it and not let that drive their life. But no, it's a part of them, and and you know. And... Yeah, no trauma therapy or yoga practice is going to change the past, but it can change the way you relate to it and change the way it sits in your brain and your body. And I think that's what's really powerful. You know, all of a sudden it, it's not this intrusive memory or intrusive pain. It's like, okay, I know where that is. I know where that came from. I can understand it. I can work with it and, and eventually oftentimes heal it. 
before. Yeah. So it's not. And I mean, that, that's one of the, I guess, one of my litmus tests and, and of sorts for people that do trauma work and, and they sort of sell to people that they're going to get rid of their trauma and they're just going to, and I'm very skeptical of any methodology that says it's going to just, you know, totally knock out the trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we can't change what happened in the past. And what we can change is the present. What we can change is the yeah. present and habits and that build you into the future. Right. So, so there is neuroplasticity and there is this way that things can change but it doesn't change what happened and it doesn't change the impact of what happened in that moment. Right. Yeah. And I think that's where physical examples come in handy. Like if someone broke their arm, it, it was broken and it can heal if you give it the right setting and you know, the right conditions, but it, it doesn't mean, Oh, I never broke my arm. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and, uh, I mean, also the, the analogy of the broken arm, I think it's a good metaphor for this in the sense that, that often when you break bones, the bones actually can grow back stronger. That, that, uh, that idea, that sort of concept of post-traumatic growth, that you can have a trauma and actually, um, after, after time, actually be stronger for having it. Absolutely. Yeah. But uh, I was wondering if you're at all uh, familiar with that organization in, in uh, MAPS. Maps? I don't think so. Which one is yeah, it? Sense of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Oh, uh, no, I'm not super familiar. Okay. I know there... people are doing um, more studies with MDMA and trauma. And... Yeah, well, well, well the, yeah, that's why I mentioned them because they're, uh, they're a nonprofit and they, they raise money to fund those studies. Okay. Actually. Uh... Yeah, it's, I think it has a lot of potential. Uh, for helping people trauma the MDMA. Yeah, I've heard of a few workshops and studies recently, um, and was just talking to someone uh, at a conference about this of how, you know, there's a lot of research going on, but until something is like legal and integrated ethically into the field, it's, you know, you got to kind of wait for that as a licensed professional. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. I mean, actually, the guy, I don't know. He was in right near Oakland, the guy who was one of the, he didn't synthesize MDMA, but he um, is one of the first ones to really bring it up into America, this guy, uh, Sasha Shulgin. Okay, no, I'm not familiar with him. He actually, like, basically, um, he was somewhere right around Oakland, I forget the exact town, but he, he basically had, like, his own little, like, laboratory in wow. his house and would invite people over and, like, wow. give them different... Uh, Compounds and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I, I think the more information we can collect, the better on what's helpful. But again, like I couldn't be refer a client to something like that, right? It's like. It's, well, no, no, I mean, he was, he was, he wasn't a. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, there's, there are now there are underground things going on like that. What? You're telling your client to go down to the third door and knock twice and see the password. <laughs> <laughs> what type of um, for the most like what's the, your private practice what type of clients you see there I really see a range of clients in terms of age in terms of gender in terms of background the common thing is they've all experienced some kind of trauma um, the only insurance I take is um, California victims of crime so I get people who uh -huh have experienced um, who've been mugged or who've been attacked and often those people come in and 
and the work is not just the trauma, you know, the PTSD from that experience, but also the things that kind of came before in terms of early childhood stuff that they may or may not have been aware of beforehand. Um, so the clients I see are, are really dealing with primarily complex trauma, things that happen over the course of development. Um, some even in terms of kind of um, current sort of state, some are super functional in terms of job and are very productive at work and some are on disability. And so it's just, there's a range. I think. So that's very interesting. They have, what, uh, what's the name of the insurance again? It's um, CalVCP, the Victim Compensation Program in California. It's really cool that they have that. I've never heard of something. They're, they're a good program. I mean, they they offer, I think it, it varies depending on what's happened to the person, but they've just offered really good care for the clients I've worked with with them. So that's it's good to know and that they're out there and that they're supporting people. How did, uh, how did you get involved with them? Uh, early on, a supervisor I had, uh, right after I moved back to California, mentioned them. And so I forgot what I even did. I think I just emailed them when I got licensed and said, hey, I'm interested in being a provider. And so I think that that was it. Um, and, and when people experience something, they're meant to be told that they have that benefit, but I don't think everyone is. So if anyone's listening is in California or even other states, you might just look up and see if they have a victim compensation program. You should be told about it. But if you're not there, you know, sometimes you have to do a little advocating to get to get what's there for you. No, yeah, that's a, a, a new learning for me. I'd like to check that out. I know there's only thing I know related to that is that it's just a support group. There's a uh, someone that I got in touch with that uh, had one of his sons. So it's a support group uh, specifically for people, uh, parents that have had like one of their kids uh, been a victim of like murder. Or, oh, or wow. But I've never heard anything the way what you're talking about. It's very, very interesting. It's helpful. Yeah. And I think people who have been through something really traumatic like that, like oftentimes they need that support. And, you know, those, it's intense and it's a life or death experience a lot of the time. So. Well, I was wondering, since, I mean, in California, it's more, they've had the medical cannabis for a long time. What, uh, um, I guess, well, what benefit you see with your clients that, that uh, or, or what your experiences with the cl clients that, have, that do use, you know, cannabis medically? What, what's been your experience? You know, I, I have some clients who have either used cannabis medically or have, you know, used it sort of informally but they say that it's that they feel like it really helps them with their anxiety primarily or with their mind being overwhelmed um yeah with with the overwhelm and with the anxiety i i've seen it I, i've just heard from clients different reports and i always try to stay really open to understanding how the substance is functioning for them um i've had people who have said you know, I, I tried it for the first time and I felt like I didn't have PTSD all of a sudden and it just felt right. so good. And and I've had people who have kind of struggled with not wanting to use it but feeling like they need to use it. So there is this this degree of dependence or this degree, like this relationship that they feel is unhealthy or not ideal and yet they haven't found something better to help them with their symptoms. You know, maybe medication gave them other side effects or things like that, or 
um, you know, they just haven't found something else that works the way that marijuana works for them. So I think I'm always just trying to stay open to if it's something that, you know, if you've tried all these medications and nothing's helped and then you try medical marijuana and you feel like, oh my God, I feel normal again. Well, great. (laughs) We found something that helps. I've also had people who have tried medical marijuana and and it takes a long time to find what kind and I'm not a professional in this way so I don't know but to find which like strand or which which is most helpful for them and so they'll go through similar to a medication they'll go through this process of okay that one I woke up I felt good the first day and then the next day I woke up and I had really bad anxiety right so they have to kind of track their symptoms over time to figure out for their constitution what's going to be most helpful. So I've seen it be this kind of frustrating process too, similar to medication where they're like, ah, I tried this one and that's not working. And, um, but I, I think. Well, yes, well, I'd be also curious because they're, I mean, Florida is a lot, much less progressive in this regard. And they, they recently opened up some kind of one dispensary in Tallahassee in Florida, but I'm wondering how, what's like the level of access to people getting that they, you know, want to obtain medical marijuana. I think, I mean, I know there are places in the Bay Area that people can go and, you know, in San Francisco and in Oakland. And so in in the places I have offices, it's never that far away. And I don't think it feels, I think pe- most of the people I've worked with feel like if they want, if they want to do medical marijuana, marijuana, then they know they can, right? They can, they can do that. Or other people who have just, you know, they know someone who sells marijuana and they can get it. And so... Right. There are times where um, the access doesn't feel as um, as difficult here, I think, and and my sense is, you know, if you look at other Western states, that that that's still developing and might change and might even become easier for people to access it. I don't know, but that's kind of the state of things right now in California. Yeah, no, I mean, I've heard a lot of reports that a lot of people with PTSD say, say it helps them, but uh, I don't, I would like to dig into myself more how, like, the, the proposed the method of of action of how cannabis is helpful for, for, like, PTSD and whatnot. I mean, I know, like, the, uh, the CBD, which is one of the ingredients, is supposed to have a bit of a um, anti-anxiety type of effect. Right. Uh, doesn't doesn't get you the THC is the one that gets you more high, but uh, but it's it's interesting. I, I li- like I like for at least my understanding of the MDMA. I see more clearly how that really works on the mechanism of, of specifically trauma. Whereas I'm not exactly sure the how they explain how cannabis helps people with, with PTSD. But right. I, I like yeah, I think it's just important that we continue to get good research in and. You know, it's it's one thing to go from client testimonials, and it's another thing to have, you know, people in that line of work really methodically look at things. But I think this is where trauma is so complex, and even treating trauma is something of an art because you gather together all these tools, and then you look at the person in front of you based on their experience and and a whole host of conditions, and and you try to figure out what's going to be most helpful for them. Um, there's so much, there's so many ways that trauma impacts our bodies and our minds. And we're just, I think, beginning to understand that. And it's, 
it's not as straightforward as a broken bone. <laughs> so right. So I mean, that, that, that exactly. I, I think that's it's very important to, to hold on to that that perspective because. Uh, but it, but it's it's like I really would like Michelle Obama to get up and, and I haven't heard anybody yet from like that level of power get up and say that we need. To sort of d adopt this national trauma-informed. That's why I have lunch with her. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I, I've heard a lot of people do it in smaller, yeah. you know, at a more like a state level or like in the Dean Burke Harris, but not not the person yeah. at the at, in the White House talking about that. And, and I feel like all the at least from my perspective. So many of these problems, the uh, you know the opiate abuse issues, the uh, the mass incarceration, uh, so many of these things are related to trauma that if we just adopt this more trauma perspective on everything, I think it would just be so transformative. It's, it's something that, you know, I've spent, well, even as a kid, right, my, my mom worked with dissociative identity disorder as a psychologist, and my dad was a marriage family therapist and a oh. Vietnam veteran. So I say I've spent my professional life, but really like a lot of my life <laughs> considering trauma and how it impacts people and being curious about it just naturally. So I've spent a lifetime of, of thinking about these things and studying them and looking at them and being interested in them. And I, and I feel exactly like you said, if everyone could just get this perspective, I had someone who went through my course and then they posted this meme after that was like, when you understand people too much to ever get mad at them again, <laughs> right. you're like, I know why you're doing this and get it. But duh. so I do think that having having trauma more, and it is getting, the, the word's getting more popular, yoga's getting more yeah. popular, and I feel like there's a way that we can kind of appropriate those things and just have them become part of the culture that already exists, or we can right. have them really inform. Like, can we really understand these things? Can we really understand what trauma is and, and, and get all the things we know about how it impacts us? Can we get that out into the culture? Because then right. it's like, so many behaviors make sense and different no, but, but like you said it is i do really see a lot i mean me even my, myself initially when i heard the word trauma i was sort of i didn't like it and it sort of made me uncomfortable and then eventually you know i sort of looked at some of my own life and, and also understanding it in more of an academic way and it really like you know blew my mind open and really uh uh yeah really i got passionate about it but i, but I, I do see it becoming more embedded in, in the sort of permeating the culture. It is happening. It's just slowly, but it's... Uh... Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I'm glad you're doing this podcast because I think it's one of the ways that people just get the information and get curious and keep studying and asking questions and doing their own healing work. And I think that's what really propels us forward. And related to what you were saying about the meme, there's this guy that he just posted this thing on Facebook that I thought was a great post. And it was basically saying about... It's a, it can be a subtle distinction, but he was saying about how, like, trying to differentiate between, you know, people that have experienced trauma and act in erratic ways versus people that are really sociopaths. Mm, it right. can be a blurred line. To it. I mean, it's... Uh... Sure. Yeah, and I think the early... That's where prevention and early intervention comes in, too, because I, I, I can almost say all of the people I've worked with, there's 
there's a heart there, there's a connection to someone there. And even if it takes six months or a year of building a relationship, you see some emotion, you see some value of human life, like some sadness at the fact that their dad left, some sad, you know, that you see the impact of relationships. And I think when you're going, when you're talking about someone being sociopathic, that's, that's what's not there. Like someone who can just completely disregard a human life and injure it with no feeling of remorse. Right. So I think the earlier, that's where prevention, early intervention, if we can have people at a young age, we have this deep desire to connect. And if people get that attachment and that connection and, Mm. and get supported in staying connected to themselves rather than being hurt or feeling traumatized and, and fragmenting or shutting down the part of themselves that's social and emotional, you know, I, I think that's that's how we can really, if we're doing more of that prevention and early intervention, then we'll have a better sense of, and in my opinion, it's a very, very small percentage of the population, but of the people who are really sociopathic in that way where they can't, they can't feel empathy or they can't establish human connection. Yeah, but I mean, like going back to what you're saying, I mean, a lot of those traits, I, I do believe, are results of attachment patterns. Totally. They are. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I, I wouldn't say you're a sociopath, but I was wondering if you ever, uh, you ever read Steve Jobs' biography. I haven't. No. Uh, but, I, but I think it's a very interesting just seeing about his early attachments and oh, how it shaped yeah. his, his personalities. And I mean, I wouldn't say he's a sociopath, but he had some very, to me, sort of things that could be. Cl- classified as personality disorders and some of his behaviors, but, uh, plenty of people in the public. I do. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, well, thanks a lot for uh, talking to me today. I don't know if you have anything else you want to say before we go. Yeah, Thanks Jeff. It's been great talking to you and talking about some of these issues. I'm really glad you're getting more of this information out there and accessible to people. Thanks. And one thing I was going to say, I really would like to come out, but it's just, uh, I was wondering if you have any plans to go there. There's this, the Dean Burke Harris is doing this conference in October at uh, in San Francisco. Oh, you know, I, I don't. Do you know the dates on that? I could send it to you. I don't know. Off the top send of my it to head. me if I'm here. I would love to go. And that reminds me, I was I think Dan Siegel's here like today. And I wanted to look that up really quickly because he was supposed to teach to Nairoga. But that's a side point. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna be teaching at a conference in Vancouver mid-October, but if I'm here, let me know if you yeah. come. And um, also, just for for people listening, in terms of resources, um, if they're interested in learning about trauma and dissociation, the ISSTD is a really good resource. Um, they're an international organization that studies trauma and dissociation. It's clinicians and researchers and and a whole host of people. So. That's a great resource. And if people are interested in doing training in yoga and trauma, my website's howwecanheal.com. And if you go straight to the training, it's slash Y, the, the number four, and the letter T. But if you go to howwecanheal.com, it's all up there. And uh, I'll post the link. I'll... Cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I'm also in the process of putting together um, a resource page of research articles on yoga. So that'll be up. I'm not going to put a timeline on it at some point. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, Amy. Thanks so much, Jeff. Uh, Lisa, Lisa, sorry. That's all right. It's been really nice talking to you, Jeff. I hope you have a great day. All right. Bye. Bye.